Hi, I'm David Freudberg. Each week at the Humankind on Public Radio podcast, we strive to practice the simple art of listening. At times, it can feel like a lost art in our noisy world, and of course, not everything is worth listening to. But for me, when I'm able to get centered, listening can be almost a sacred experience, a moment of focused attention that accords the speaker a measure of dignity. If you value this too, please help others to find our podcast. Consider going to Humankind on Public Radio at iTunes and leave us a kind review. And thanks for listening. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and the Henry Luce Foundation. Kids would come into school crying on the day of tests, and kids would um, get so stressed out that they wouldn't come to school at all, and they would just give up. How well do high-stakes standardized tests actually measure learning, and are there less stressful alternatives? You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. It may be analogous to white coat syndrome. That's a phenomenon when some medical patients register a higher blood pressure than they do normally because being examined in the doctor's office makes them nervous. And a similar test anxiety can happen with school children who may have learned the material but who don't perform well on academic tests when a lot's on the line. Suhaila Booker is a student at Hampshire College. With tests in general, but especially with standardized testing, you could not pay attention in class, you could goof off, you could be ridiculous, you could miss class, and still pass a standardized test. It measures a student's ability to use process of elimination and to know, well, this is probably not right, so this is probably the right answer. And so a person who doesn't participate in class, who doesn't show up to class, might get a better grade than me because they know how to take a test and I get really anxious. This is just one critique emerging about the regime of high-stakes standardized tests now prevalent in American public education. It was spurred on by the No Child Left Behind Act of 2001, passed under President George W. Bush. American children were falling behind students in other countries on basic skills. Standardized testing was intended to provide a metric for how well children were learning. But a widespread movement now says all this testing has gone too far. John Campanasecki teaches middle school in the small town of Lahara, Colorado. Well, we often say you cannot press a square peg into a round hole. That is exactly what we have been unwillingly compelled to do with the adoption of more standardized tests and more standardized curriculum year after year. Standardized tests and curriculum produce one thing, standardized students. Actually extend that. It produces standardized citizens. Kampanasecki addressed a rally at the state capitol in Denver. One student carried a sign proclaiming, I am not a test score. 
According to FAIR Test, a national coalition of reform advocates, boycotts of standardized testing have been reported in nearly every state. A movement to grant parents the legal right to opt their children out of these tests is now gaining traction. Elliot Garcia struggled with standardized exams in New York City public schools. I always bombed on the exams. I never did well. Um, and I always raised huge concerns for the school because I wasn't able to perform to my best ability, even though they saw that, okay, you know, Elliot, you are a smart kid, but why aren't you able to um, excel? Um, and, you know, I'm not learning if I'm taking, if, if my education is surrounded by a t uh, an exam. And, you know, throughout, from, from my first year of high school, <clears throat> with the Regents test, that's what they drilled into our heads on a daily basis. Every week, every day, every month, you have to pass these regions. And if you don't, then you're gonna get left back. And it freaks everybody out thinking, okay, I have to, I, I'm just working towards these exams, not anything else. I'm not working to learn. I'm not doing anything else for my education, just these exams, and it's, and it's hindering. Elliot ultimately transferred to Urban Academy, an independent school in Manhattan that does not administer standardized tests. Urban says 90% of its graduates enter four-year colleges. Elliot is now majoring in computer science at Bard College. Suhaila Booker also found Urban a more conducive learning environment than she'd experienced in a traditional school. For me specifically, um, sitting in a room with a whole bunch of other students and like sitting in rows and taking this test, th the thoughts that are going on in my head is that like, the person next to me probably knows the answer to this question, and maybe I know the answer to the question, but what if I'm wrong? And so I would sit there and I would doubt myself, and I would say, like, I, like I, I, and I would have all of these thoughts going on in my head, and so I would be distracted, and I would be looking around at everyone else and wondering what they were thinking, and if they were thinking the same thing as me, or if they were having no problems at all. Um, and it, was, it m wasn't necessarily about the test itself, but, the environment that we were in and the pressure that was put on me in middle school to take these standardized tests was really stressful. It made me feel, and I think this is true of standardized testing in general, it made me feel like if I didn't have the same answers as someone else, then I was inadequate. And So did you feel a strong sense that you were actually competing against the other kids who were sitting in the room taking the same test with you? Yes, that was exactly the feeling, and that was always the feeling, and that's something that um, my college, that's why we don't have tests at my college, because it really does take the competitiveness out of learning, and people are just learning. This is a different take on education. It embraces learning for learning's sake rather than an atmosphere that reformers criticize as industrialized and joyless. Suhaila believes this new approach reflects a whole philosophy about how people develop. You don't stop learning when you leave school. You know, you learn outside of school. You learn at work. You learn when you go to camp. You learn when you do everything. Um, and I think that's the idea of learning, that it never ends. And with tests, you pack all of this information into your head and you study, 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 and you stay up and you get stressed out. And then once you take the test, you don't have to worry about it anymore. And, and as opposed to with learning where it just, you're just enjoying learning. And so there isn't all the stress that's attached to it. 
Uh, and when I, I always felt like when I took tests, after the test was over, I didn't have to think about it anymore, and it completely went out of my head. So the things that you had crammed to learn and to memorize, you had forgotten? Yes. Every, I forgot everything. The tests were very damaging to everybody's education there. Actually damaging? Yes. Gemma Venuti, now studying human ecology at the College of Atlantic in Bar Harbor, Maine, also transferred to Urban Academy. She disliked the emphasis on testing at her previous school. The tests were taken as a very serious measure of students' intelligence, and other students would ask um, you what grade you got. And if you were getting bad grades on your tests, nobody would want to be in groups with you when you were doing group projects in science class or in math class or in any class. Um, Kids, I didn't learn well under stress. So if I was thinking about the test next period, then I probably wasn't listening to the teacher in class a period before. Kids would come into school crying on the day of tests, and kids would um, get so stressed out they wouldn't come to school at all and they would just give up. Urban Academy was co-founded by education reformer Ann Cook. Today, she works primarily with a consortium of New York schools, including Urban, which have developed other means of evaluating student learning. She feels the widespread adoption of standardized testing has created unintended problems. The tests count for a lot, and in this culture, uh, we test a lot, and we we make a lot of draw a lot of conclusions from those tests. So they have consequences. Now, the, the fact that they have consequences means that the pressure is on teachers to make sure kids do as well as they can. Ann Cook believes the tests are an imprecise gauge of learning. The test questions are sometimes quite confusing. On occasion, the results are scored erroneously. Yet in many school districts, the level of teacher pay is now tied to test results, so the pressure's high to maximize scores. In April 2015, 11 public school educators in Atlanta were convicted of criminal charges related to cheating, which was found by a state review in more than half the district's elementary and middle schools. Fulton County Superior Court Judge Jerry Baxter. I made myself plain from early on and they have made this decision, and they have, they have, they have not fared well. And, and I, I don't like to send anybody to jail. It's not one of the things I, I get a kick out of, but they have made their bed, and they're going to have to lie in it, and it starts today. The indictment said that test answers had been altered and fabricated, and it alleged racketeering. The initial sentence, widely criticized as harsh, was reduced to three years in prison. But former Atlanta mayor and civil rights activist Andrew Young was looking for the context in which improper conduct occurred. I think these teachers got caught in a trap. Dr. King used to say, when people are placed in darkness, crimes will be committed. But the guilty are not just those who commit the crimes, but those who create the darkness. 
In Long Island, New York, Marla Kilfoyle places blame squarely on the system. She's an advocate for parents, a teacher with 29 years of classroom experience, and a leader in the local opt-out movement. She's also the parent of an elementary school child with disabilities. His kindergarten, first and second grade years were magnificent. Um, He had wonderful classrooms that uh, celebrated his uniqueness and taught his grade level. Um, And by the second grade, he was about four months behind, and that was a huge celebration for us. And then he entered third grade. Um, We noticed about two months into the year, he didn't really want to go to school that much. He also began to stutter. Um, He would say he didn't like math. Math made him feel dumb. He hated math. And just so you know, this was the year that they decided to introduce Common Core and the testing. Um, He wasn't bringing home art, social studies, or science anymore. These are all of the subjects that he loved. I think issues of creativity, art, opportunities for students, for children to explore. I think that uh, young children don't have opportunities to, to use materials like sand and water and blocks. Uh, They don't get to explore all kinds of books, fiction and nonfiction. Now that we have tests that we know we're going to put much more of an emphasis on nonfiction, that means that people who used to teach poetry, used to teach creative writing, there's less of that because that's not considered as important on the test. And Cook. Uh, I think at the upper grades where you have English and math are the two subjects that get continually year by year annually tested. You have a drop-off in science and a drop-off in exploration around scientific issues. Uh, I think you have a drop-off in kids understanding uh, government and uh, society and uh, history. That goes by the board very often. So there are lots of subject areas that students aren't aren't exposed to, lots of activities that students aren't exposed to, and lots of approaches that don't lend themselves to testing you know, the adage is if, it isn't, if it's not tested, it's not taught. I think it's becoming more and more true. Now, of course, the other side of the debate says that we need to establish accountability in the schools because there are many kids who are going through the schools, in some cases even graduating without certain very important basic competencies, and that the way to validate whether these competencies are uh, being uh, absorbed by the students is to perform uh, this testing that allows there to be a conclusion as to whether or not the kids are are in fact learning. Otherwise, people are just kind of drifting through and not gaining. So why is that not a valid concern? Well, I think you have to separate testing from accountability. I think that we're making the assumption that that the only way for schools to be accountable is through testing. And I would challenge that. I think there are many ways of knowing whether schools are doing an, a, a good job with, with kids. Um, talk to kids. You look at their work. You look at the things that are going on in the school. Uh, you drop in on the school. You talk to the teachers. You see what they're doing. You see what books kids are reading. You stop kids in the hall. You talk to them about it. I mean, most seasoned educators can walk in a school and within five minutes tell you whether there's anything going on in that school. Go to the office. Ask the the, the, the principal to show you the, the roster of students and to pick a kid or two kids at random and say, to, bring me an adult who can talk to me about that student. Tell me all about that kid. I want to talk to him. And see if they can produce such a person, a teacher, 
a, a counselor, an administrator, who knows that child well? Because if, if an adult in the school can talk about knowing that child well, then I think you t it's, you're going some distance towards knowing whether that school is accountable. Are they accountable for the children that are in that school? So, so there, there are many, many ways of knowing whether schools are, um, are, being, uh, are educating their children. Considering the widespread protest movement against the proliferation of high-stakes standardized testing in public schools, you're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. To learn more about this segment, high-stakes testing, and to obtain a CD or audio download, you can visit humanmedia.org. Everyone seems to agree that the quality of learning in schools should be evaluated so that kids, especially underprivileged kids, don't fall behind. But the critics of standardized testing question the method of evaluation. Ann Cook, who leads a consortium of New York-based schools, says there are valid alternatives to standardized testing. The Performance Standards Consortium has many ways of knowing if students are succeeding and whether they're being, the schools are serving them well and whether teachers are teaching well. We look at student work, we grade the student work, uh, we look at, uh, we talk to the students, there are outside examiners coming in who talk to the students, examine them about their work. We look at the outcome data about what happens to them when they graduate. We look at whether the students are, are persisting in college. Um, we, we, we interview them. We ask them what areas they were in having trouble with or what areas they were succeeding in. Um, so there are many, many ways of looking at a school and of looking at individual students and, and holding the schools accountable for what they're doing. But let me just say on the other side, I think we're not, we, we're fooling ourselves if we think that the tests are, are successful in, in giving us a, a measure of accountability. Advocates of opting out from these tests point to another fact. Standardized testing has become big business. Individual state contracts to companies that administer the exams sometimes run into the hundreds of millions of dollars. And this creates an incentive for a profitable, one-size-fits-all approach, all of which can complicate life for students, especially those in special populations. The special needs students, many of them are not terrific test takers, but they're very, if you give them an opportunity to present their work, talk about their work, be examined about their work, it isn't that they don't know certain things, it's that they have different methods of being able to communicate it. Similarly with L students, English language learners, that the pedagogy in these schools tends to be much more conversational, not more based on teacher uh, chalk and talk. It's much more interactive between students. And everything we know about how English language learners learn the language is about conversation, about discussion. So it's reflected in the graduation data, obviously, if they have an opportunity in their classes to have conversations and present their work and talk about their work and listen to other students and hear other students talk, they're going to do better and they're going to succeed at a higher level. 
So the absence of standardized testing at these consortium schools allows educators to avoid a narrow focus on teaching to the test. This promotes a different style of learning that may provide a more well-rounded preparation for college. And the results from the latest data are impressive. Students from these schools stay enrolled in college significantly longer than students from traditional schools. Elliot Garcia, now at Bard. It was my first literature class at, at Urban, and it was just, you know, do read around 40 to 50 pages, was, which was a lot for me, um, and then write a simple two-page reflection on what you thought about the reading. And at the time, it was daunting because I came from a high school where the teachers were, like, literally telling us that, you know, we're failures if we, if, if we can't pass the regents. Um, I had a math teacher who told us that on a daily basis, if you don't pass this, and he would look at us in our eyes and say, if you don't pass this test, you are a failure. You can't succeed in school. The standardized yeah. testing in New York State, the regions. Mm -hmm. And when I went to Urban and I was required to write this paper, I was I already had the, the, the defeated feeling. Like, I'm, I, I can't do this because I'm, you know, if I had teachers telling me that I'm a failure and, you know, this is their profession, they know how to do this, they're already seeing that I can't achieve something like this, then why even try? So I, I wrote it out and I, I read it, I reread it, and you know, I, I was panicking about handing it in because like, I felt like I, I couldn't accomplish it. But from there, it was, it, was a, it was a turning point because I was able to build my voice, formulate my own, formulate my own opinions on what I think about certain issues and certain subjects and certain texts and being able to, to write a paper on it. And, you know, that was, that, was, that was huge for me because I wasn't able to do that before. I wasn't able to write a page before without it feeling like I'm just writing a whole bunch of nothing. To earn their diploma, Urban Academy students must pass their courses and demonstrate proficiency in other ways, including class participation and independent reading. And for some courses, there's also a one-on-one -on -one evaluation. Gemma Venuti now studying science at College of the Atlantic. One of the big differences is that the outside examiner can ask you questions back. Um, so you don't really know going in what those questions are going to be. When you're taking a test, you have an idea of what the questions are going to be. In fact, you have whole test prep sessions where the teachers give you questions that will be similar to the ones on the test. But when you're defending an experiment in front of an actual person, you have absolutely no idea what they're going to ask you. And I think it shows more competency when you can answer questions that you can't predict. Everybody learns at, at, at their own rates, different ways. Um, I wasn't able to learn at, at the conventional rate. Um, I was just being taught how to memorize things being taught how to perform well on the test, and I wasn't, I didn't know how to learn. Um, I didn't know how to do my own independent research. I didn't know how to uh, analyze the text. I didn't know how to be a critical thinker. Um, and those are the tools that I was able to get out of Urban that I, I, I wouldn't sit here and say that, you know, students who, who go through the traditional way of schooling don't get, because, you know, everybody learns in their own way. I know for, for myself that I can't learn that way. So where is the support for the students who can't learn that way? And where's, where, where are their voices? Where, where is their backbone? Because it's just shown every, 
every student who takes tests, there's a huge support for them, but where are those students, like where's the support for the students who can't perform that way? Estimates of families whose children opt out of standardized testing now run into the hundreds of thousands nationwide. Amy Platzmeyer, a parent organizer at an outdoor news conference in Brooklyn, New York. If we look at all the parents here today, those who are opting out for the second, third, fourth time, we all have this in common. We have come to realize that these tests and all they bring in their wake a culture of fear among families, teachers, and administrators, tedious weeks of test preparation that narrows the curriculum and pushes out real learning. We have come to see that these tests are not benefiting our children. I think it's very significant. Ann Cook. Parents have very few ways they can express their dissatisfaction with, with current policy. Um, if you're opposed to something, how do you express that? How do you make that feeling known beyond yourself? And I think what, what numbers and numbers of parents are feeling is that it's that the testing um, um, policies have taken over schools. They've, they've changed the kind of educational opportunities that children can have. They've changed the relationship between parents and teachers, between teachers and, t and, and, t and uh, children. And I think the way that they have, the, one of the few ways they can express that is, this is my child. I don't want my child to have that experience. I'm not going to allow my child to participate in something I see as destructive. So I think that in that sense, it's quite significant. And we're saying that this test measures a student's zip code more than it measures their aptitude. Jesse Hagopian, a high school history teacher in Seattle, speaking recently at a news conference by the local NAACP. It measures their access to resources. It measures the books in the home and the, the level of education of their parents, not how smart they are. There's a long history of these tests being used to rank and sort, to label students of color and African Americans as inferior. At the same time, they under-resource those schools that serve students of color. And we're rejecting that here today. At the same time, other advocates for disadvantaged families, including President Obama, have endorsed federally mandated standardized testing. They see test scores as a way to document which communities are academically underserved and thus in need of greater public support. Ann Cook. Well, I, I, I'm in sympathy with their concern because I think we have a lot of examples around the country of students who have uh, few opportunities to learn. We have inequities. We have a lack of resources in many communities across the country. Uh, we, we have uh, crumbling buildings. We have budget shortfalls. Um, I think that that's a real concern, and I think what, what groups want to do is to make sure that, is to try to find ways that they can show what the real situation is. They can, they can uh, put it out there for people to actually see. And of course, one of the ways it's been used over and over again is to show that, that student test scores you know, demonstrate this, this, this disparity. 
I think the problem is that it's that it's too one-dimensional. That you need to look. I mean, I think you would find that if you used a whole host of criteria, that you would still identify some of the, the most egregious offenders, most some of the states and districts and cities and so on and school districts that uh, that do not provide opportunities to learn and do not provide proper resources. I don't think you need. Uh, the test scores, I think, have their own problems. They have their own set of problems. Ann Cook, co-founder of Urban Academy and an advocate of alternatives to high-stakes standardized testing in schools. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg, studio recording by Alan Mattis, editorial assistance from Ken Rogers and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, High Stakes Testing, is Humankind program number 223. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.